Well, as we continue to go through this sermon series in the Gospel of Mark called Amazed and Afraid, we are focusing on the interactions that people had with Jesus. And I think you will begin to see a pattern if you haven't already in the last couple weeks. Jesus does something amazing or fear-inducing, and then we see either crowds or disciples, the people around him respond. Sometimes they respond well, sometimes not so well. So I really want to think about that today, and I was trying to think of, you know, something amazing and, and a response that I could remember, and I, and I this, this kind of dumb story from my childhood came up, but I, I think it, it, it might help. I remember today in eighth grade, I was shooting uh, hoops in the driveway with my dad, and this guy walked up to us from the street. He was holding a utility bag, and he said, hey, I just wonder if I could interrupt you for a second and just ask one question. Now, we didn't know if he had the wrong house, if he was looking for directions, if he was looking for money, but my dad said, yeah, sure, go ahead, ask your question. And he said, so I see that you have oil and grease spots on your driveway. My question is, would you like me to get rid of them for you right now free of charge? And my dad said, well, yeah, sure, good luck with that, you know. And, and he took out his bag, he pulled out this, this orange bottle, and he squirted some leak, liquid on the, on the grease, the oil spot, wiped it up with a rag, and the spot was completely gone. In my memory, my dad freaked out. That was his response. Wow, that's incredible. I think he called my mom out, and he's like, Judy, look at this. This is amazing. I've been trying forever and ever to get this spot up, and this, this happened right away. He, this guy did it in a matter of seconds. Clearly, this guy was a great salesman, had a good product, and my dad, even though he's a frugal guy, he had to respond. How do you respond? He bought three bottles of the stuff, right? There's probably still some in his garage, I'm guessing, because he couldn't deny the efficacy of this product, right? Now, I, I am not in any way equating a cleaning product uh, for grease stains with, with Jesus performing the miracles that we've already talked about, but I am saying that when something amazing happens, it demands a response from us. What we see is Jesus performing miracles, teaching boldly, in such a way that people around him were amazed. Wow, that's incredible. Grabbing a friend, hey, come look at this. Come see what's going on. And they respond in that way. They are compelled to do so. We see that from the people in these texts. And as I'll share later, there is an invitation and response from us, too, as we interact with these stories, even today. I love the Gospel of Mark. It's an honor to be preaching it, uh, preaching from it in this season, preaching through it. I love Mark because Mark is so on the nose, so straightforward, so fast-paced, and because it builds story over story. If you're following along with us, you may have found that. This is really in chapter 4 where we are today, where we really start to get a sense of the growing ministry of Jesus. He's done amazing things, two of which we've noted the last two Sundays. Jesus... Uh, healing a man from an unclean spirit that came into the synagogue. And then Jesus healing a paralyzed man whose friends lowered him through the roof into the crowded room where Jesus was teaching. So the crowds around Jesus are growing because more and more people are like, this is amazing, come check this out. People are recognizing how amazing this man is. And he ends up teaching on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in Mark 3 and Mark 4. And he shares some of his most beloved parables Stories about the kingdom that he shares in his ministry. And people are, you guessed it, amazed, sometimes afraid, at all that Jesus is doing and saying in their midst. His teaching becomes popular enough that he has to actually get into a boat on the shore and set out a little ways so that his 
voice can echo off, bounce off of the water to create sort of an amphitheater because the crowds were getting so big on the seashore. And that's where our text picks up today. So would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? <clears throat> From Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, Jesus was, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was dead calm, and he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The Gospel of the Lord, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. It's a beautiful text that we have today, and I'm going to do something different with it today. I'm going to tell you that your initial interpretation as you've received this text today is probably correct. It's probably right. I don't do that very often. Some of you have been here a while. You know that most Sundays that I'm working through a text, I end up giving sort of linguistic or historical context that actually shifts our understanding. I, I oftentimes am going, this is what it looks like on the surface, but when we understand this, actually this is what it means, right? And again, what I love about the Gospel of Mark is that it's so straightforward that your initial interpretation as you just receive the text is probably pretty close to what Mark intended for that text. We've already seen that in the series. Jesus confronts the man with the unclean spirit. What does that show us? We can read it and we can go, Jesus has authority over the spiritual world. He can do these miracles in that spiritual realm. And then that story of the the paralytic being dropped down through the roof where Jesus heals. What does that tell us? That Jesus is able to heal. He has, he has authority over the physical realm, even illness and disease. It's also a clear interpretation from that text that if we have people who are hurting in our lives, friends that are in need of Jesus' healing, what do we do? We bring them to Jesus, which is what we did last week. Both of these texts prove that when it comes to the Gospel of Mark, your initial takeaway, your initial interpretation is probably pretty close to his intended takeaway. So let me tell you what this text is about before I even preach on it. Okay, spoiler alert. This is, this is what this text is about. Jesus has authority over the natural world, over all creation, which proves that he is the Lord over all creation. There you go. I just told you what this text is all about. But just as Pastor Simon did the last couple of weeks, I want to offer some just tidbits, some, some thoughts from this text that I don't think will change our reading of the text, but I think it will enhance how we might respond later to this text. So I actually have eight contextual tidbits to reinforce Mark's intent in telling the story, and, and hopefully this will lead us to our own sort of form of amazement, even, maybe even a healthy fear of this Jesus, the one whom the winds and the waves even obey. So eight observations. You ready for this? Here we go. Okay, first one. These narratives appear to be continuous. Verse 36 says, Leaving the crowd behind, 
They took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was. I did quite a bit of research on that little clause there, just as he was this week. It's kind of a strange phrase that we don't have a ton of understanding of, but most scholars think that it means that Jesus didn't even go back to shore after his teaching. That he was in that boat, remember? Just a, maybe a, f- a few yards out from the, from the shore teaching. And while he's there, he finishes the parable, and he's like, well, let's, let's keep going. He taught those parables, and he said, let's not stop. Let's push off from here. Let's go across to the other side of the lake, because God has stuff for us to do over there. Now, I can imagine that perhaps the disciples were not super excited about this. Maybe they wanted a little break. Maybe they wanted some dinner. Maybe they uh, were excited about what was going on with these crowds on the seashore. And they didn't really want to leave that place. But either way, Marx makes the point that these narratives are continuous. They're fast-paced. Jesus is on the move with these disciples. And it's probably good for us to think about, go back and to read those parables, by the way, and go, how do those tie in to this, to this journey on the sea and what's coming next? Second tidbit. There was a mission to be fulfilled on the other side of the lake, and that place was kind of a scary place for a first-century Jew. Uh, Verse 35 says that they went, quote, to the other side of the lake. What does that mean? It depends on sort of where you set off from. But from Capernaum, we know from the following narrative, which we're going to dive into next week, that the other side of the lake was the southeastern edge of the Sea of Galilee, known as the Gerasa region or the Gerasene region. This region was not like the town of Capernaum where they were coming from. It was a Gentile pagan region where they were not expecting a warm welcome from the people. We know that it's a pagan land because apparently swine herding was a, was a uh, respectable profession there, which no first century Jew would have done because of their cleanliness laws. But this was not some sort of joy ride across the lake to a new adventure for the disciples. Jesus had work to do. He had a mission to be fulfilled in this region. And these disciples knew that this was sort of a scary place for them to go. So that, but that's where they went. Third thing, the sea is a loaded metaphor for Jews. If you just think through the Old Testament, if you know some of those stories, you you have to know that this is a loaded metaphor. Apart from some humble fishermen like Peter, the Jews were not a seafaring people at all. They left that to their Phoenician neighbors to the north. And if we study Jewish literature, the sea came to symbolize everything that was evil and bad. It was just this this, this kind of place where all the bad places went, it, it, bad things went, it sort of represented all that was discouraging and frustrating and evil and bad and destructive came from the sea. It was a dark and dangerous place full of nefarious creatures. In the book of Daniel, we come to see darkness and evil personified as this beast called Leviathan. Where does Leviathan live? You guessed it, the sea, right? The depths of the sea. So know that even as they're out on the water, even for these fishermen, some of them fishermen, this is not a joy ride. There's always this loaded metaphor of the sea is a bad place. It's a dangerous place. It's an evil place. This is where evil comes from. So it's frightening for them. Fourth, uh, legit storms do happen on the Sea of Galilee, even today. Uh, The Sea of Galilee actually is not a sea at all. It's a rather a a medium-sized freshwater lake on A lake like this, we might think that the idea of a storm, a raging storm, is more of like a metaphor, but it's not. Uh, Because the Sea of Galilee is actually nestled between hills and mountains. It's in a basin. So when the wind starts whipping off of those mountains, it kind of goes down into that basin, basin, and and it can just be swirling winds that can create significant storms. In fact, even today, the largest city on the Sea of Galilee on the western shore is called Tiberias. 
and there are some cool beaches in Tiberias, there's actually signs on those beaches that say, you know, you park here at your own risk because your car could get swamped if a storm comes or could even be pulled in to the lake, into the sea. So I think it's also indicative to us that even though there were a couple fishermen who spent their lives on this lake, uh, on this boat, they were frightened too. What does that tell us? This was a legit storm. This was a real storm. Fifth thing, Mark, through Jesus' interaction here, is referencing a ton of Old Testament passages. You can probably think of some of them on your own, but Mark's readers would have been mostly Jewish. They would have known the Old Testament very well. So hearing this story, they would have heard echoes of Old Testament stories, and those echoes are very much intentional. From Genesis 1, where where does chaos happen? It happens in the water. It's, It's over the water, right? It's over the sea. Or the great flood of Noah that covered the earth. Or think of the Israelites on their way out of Egypt. What did they have to do? They had to part the sea while the Egyptians behind them were destroyed. They perished. The Psalms frequently talk about God's power over the raging sea as a sign of his authority, his majesty. But the most resonant and obvious echo, some of you are thinking of it, is the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah. There's tons of points of connection here to the prophet Jonah, who too found himself sleeping in a boat in the midst of a storm. Except for Jonah, that storm was only placated when he threw himself overboard and was consumed by what most Jewish people would call Leviathan, a big sea monster. Now the contrast here is fascinating. Jonah is running away from God's mission while Jesus is going straight towards it, right? Jonah has to sacrifice himself to the deep, to death, in order for the sea to be calm. But Jesus has authority over the sea. But what will Jesus eventually do? He will sacrifice himself unto death, to the deep, as well, to atone for the sins of humanity. Needless to say, a Jewish listener would have heard significant Old Testament echoes. Sixth thing. Jesus is not sleeping to be dramatic. He is sleeping because he's human. During all the commotion, the text tells us that Jesus is asleep. He's on a nice cushion. He's in the stern of the boat, seemingly unconcerned about his own fate and the fate of the disciples above. How could he sleep through this? I mean, if he's an all-knowing, all-powerful God in human form, why would he be sleeping? Is this all kind of for dramatic effect? Is he waiting for just the right moment to come up and, and do his really cool trick? Well, interestingly, the only mention of Jesus in the New Testament sleeping is right here. That's it. Why does Mark note this? Why now? I'm I'm convinced it's because he wants to highlight the fact that before Jesus does something that no human could do, Jesus is fully human. He was tired. He'd been teaching. He'd been doing these miracles. He'd been moving fast, this fast-paced ministry, right? For Mark, it's important to show Jesus' humanity especially before he does something that no other human could do. Seventh, Jesus treats the wind in the same way that he treats the demons earlier in the chapter of Mark. Verse 30, uh, first chapter of Mark. Verse 39, he says, he woke up and rebuked the wind. He said to the sea, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was dead calm. Rebuked, that's the word that I'm centering in on there. That's the word that Mark chooses. It's the same word that was used that we talked about two weeks ago in Mark 1. With the man with the unclean spirit, what did Jesus do? He rebuked that spirit in the synagogue. 
does that mean that Jesus is sort of personifying the sea, that he sees the sea as sort of this character, that this evil being that he's rebuking? I don't really think so. And I actually think the translation, peace be still, is sort of a, it's not sort of, it is a regrettable translation. A better translation would be, stop it, quit it, knock it off. Jesus speaks to the chaos of the sea in Galilee the same way that I imagine God speaking at the chaos of creation. And the result is the same, peace, order. It's really hard to imagine God the creator looking at this undescribable chaos and seeking to bring order and saying, hey, chaos, peace, be still. I don't think so. I think he's saying a strong rebuke to that chaos, saying stop it, knock it off. Interestingly, Jesus uses the same words, and I think he is clearly referencing Psalm 46. Psalm 46, where it says, be still and know that I am God. Have you heard that verse before? Be still and know that I am God. This is a verse that has been used to encourage, you know, a 15-minute devotional prayer time every day and inner peace and tranquility, but that's not what God is saying in Psalm 46 at all. God's word through the psalmist is actually a rebuke. God is saying, stop it. Quit it and recognize, acknowledge that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. Doesn't it make sense that Jesus would do the same thing? I mean, can you feel the power of him turning to the raging waters and saying, stop it, quit it, and recognize waves, wind, storm, that I am God. And then what? Stillness. I'm also aware that as we talk about other miracles in the last couple weeks, physical healing, spiritual healing, that there's a possibility that other humans could take some sort of claim on that or, or say that I was partner in that in some sense. This is one where no human could ever claim partnership here, right? We have absolutely zero control over the weather. We have zero control over the storm. Only God, through the person of Jesus, has authority over that, which amazes the disciples, as it should. Eighth thing. He calls the disciples out for their lack of faith. What we're going to find throughout the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is building up this big question over and over again. Don't you have faith yet? What else do I need to do? What else do I need to show you? What else do I need to say to you to show you that I am indeed God? The disciples have sort of acted like the crowd at numerous points already in this Gospel, but clearly Jesus expects more from them. He expects that they would move just beyond amazement, just that wow factor, that fear, to true faith. So that when Jesus finally goes to the cross, does his greatest miracle of all, that they would understand it. That they would recognize it. And I see Jesus as a gracious rabbi, teacher here saying, you don't get it yet? Okay. Let me show you more of who I am. Stay with me. Let me show you more of who I am. So those are eight observations. Again, the beauty of Mark's gospel is that you don't need these eight observations to see Jesus in the way that Mark wants to present him. But I hope that maybe some of these observations give you a deeper appreciation for Jesus and the intricacies of this narrative. But there's one more observation that's going to be helpful. It's going to pay dividends in the weeks to come that's important for us to know, and that's this. Most scholars believe that the gospel of Mark is from Peter's eyewitness account. This text today would be an awesome argument for that, by the way, because if you think of it, there's a lot of details in this passage. They left right away. There were other boats that were there. 
the waves were beating on the side, the, the, the boat was being swamped. Those kinds of details give you the impression that the source of Mark's gospel account was probably in that boat, right? Who else could talk with authority about that? If that's true, that Mark is in some ways Peter's avatar, then this passage just isn't, isn't just about the obvious truth that Jesus has authority over the natural world, but it's also an invitation. So there's things that we can see and understand about Jesus, but there's also an invitation in here. The author is saying, look at how Peter responded. Look at how the disciples responded. Now, how are you going to respond? How would you respond if you were in that situation? How are you responding right now? And I, and I really think this is part of what God wants to do. Some of the best work that God wants to do in our heart through, through Scripture is when we combine a knowledge and understanding with a real heartfelt response. That's some of the best work that God wants to do in your life. Where you can say, hey, through this narrative, this story, this, this understanding of Scripture, I understand God, Jesus, better, but I also know how to respond. So with that in mind, I want to encourage us towards a response this morning. What kind of response does this passage invite us into? Mark makes it pretty easy for us to understand what this text is about. What's the response? What's the response that he's looking for from his readers, including us? Four things, simple things. Recognize the storm. Ask Jesus for help. Be amazed. Continue in mission. Recognize the storm. Ask Jesus for help. Be amazed. Continue on mission. We're all facing a storm right now. Not a single one of us is unaffected by this global pandemic. Not a single one of us is unaffected by the political and social and racial and economic climate around us. I don't think that any one of us is, is just sailing smoothly through this cultural storm right now of confusion and pain and competing values. I think we all feel that general sense of storm. Some of you feel it acutely, personally. You are in a personal storm right now, and it's chaotic. Maybe things are falling apart for you in work, or school, or your marriage, or your family, or your health, or your friendships. It's a storm that we share, right? This sort of general storm, but it can also be deeply personal for some of you here today. I believe that. Either way, this storm beats us up. It frustrates us. It overwhelms us. Let's just recognize that to start. Pretty hard to ask Jesus for help if we don't recognize that a storm is there. For some of us, that storm is threatening to swamp us and consume us. For others, it's just a really rocky ride that's making us feel sick and stealing our joy. Either way, let's recognize the storm. It's okay to say, I'm afraid, I'm overwhelmed, I'm feeling beat up right now. That's okay. And it's okay because I have good news for you. You're not alone in the storm. Isn't that obvious in this text? You're not alone in the storm. Jesus, the one true God, the one who has authority over the storm, is actually right there with you. He is sleeping like humans do to show you that he is human like you. He's identifying with you so that you can identify with him. So go ask him for help. How do we do that? We reach out to him in prayer and we say, Jesus, I'm getting crushed here. I'm overwhelmed. Help me. I need you. This is too much. It's okay to wake him up. 
Jesus wants to help you. He's present with you in the storm. And, and I believe, I truly do believe that he will help you. He will face the storm with you, and he will say to that storm, enough, stop it. Recognize me as God. And when he does this for you, in his time and in his way, I encourage you to be amazed. Tell him how amazing he is. Maybe you're even able to look at previous storms in your life right now, and you can remember how amazing he has been in those past storms, the way that he was with you, the way that he showed up. Tell him you are amazed by him. Just briefly, two weeks ago, my wife was in a car crash just a few blocks down here on 4th Street. Another driver swiped into the front of our car, totaled the car. Every airbag went off. She, she called me, and I rushed over. Paramedics were there. The police were there. And I'm looking at this car, and I'm wondering how in the world she walked away from this with no injuries, other than some whiplash and some soreness, which we're navigating right now. You can pray for that. But how much worse could it have been if it was a split second later or earlier? I'm not uh, always proud of how I respond to things in the moment. I don't know if you're that way. If you're like, I just always nail it, right? Um, I don't always nail it. But um, I had the wherewithal to sort of huddle together both Katie and the other driver and his, this young man and his family who had come to check on him. And I just said, I'm amazed that you are both okay. And I'm just, I'm a pastor. I'm a person of faith. We're people of faith. I really believe that God was with you both and protected you from so much worse. And I'm very thankful to him for that. And I encourage you to see God's presence with you in this awful moment and, and to tell him thanks. Like, I'm thankful, right? That's a pretty good response. That's, an amaze, that's being amazed at the help of God, the presence of God, his help in the midst of that very scary split second. I responded to him by saying thanks. And I would encourage you to, to think about doing the same. How is God seeing you through your current storm? How do we say thanks? And don't be surprised that once the storm sort of subsides, that Jesus turns to you and says, so do you get it now? Do you get my character now? Is it time for some real faith? We're going to get to those questions in the weeks to come. But last thing, once the storm subsides, begins to subside, you see some, some light at the end of the tunnel, we don't go back to the harbor that we just came from. Why? Because there's work to do. There's a mission on the other side. We're not the same person doing the same thing. It's a whole other storm over on the other side of the lake. But God's already been with us in this storm, so why wouldn't he be with us over there too? And he's brought us along for the journey because he has more to show us, more to teach us. The mission goes on, and you're invited into it. And how can we say no to that mission after we see Jesus, the Lord, over even the wind and the waves and the storm? So let's keep journeying with Jesus. We will continue to be amazed, and hopefully like the disciples, we will grow bold in our response and our faith as we journey with the one who has authority, even over the winds and the waves. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are Lord over the storm, the storms of our lives, the natural world. You are powerful, Lord. 
So for those here today who are still in the midst of the storm, who feel that acutely and personally today, however big or small that storm is, Lord, I pray that you would give them an overwhelming sense right now, right here, of your presence. Would you teach them what it means to reach out to you to say, Lord, where are you? I'm afraid. Help me, Lord. Might they feel your presence right now? For those who are coming out of a storm, who see light at the end of the tunnel, Lord, would you give them courage in their response to you right now? Might it be gratitude? Might it be trust? Might it be an increasing faith and a desire to go, I'm not going back to the harbor that I was at before. I'm moving forward with Jesus. Lord, we were aware of these personal storms. I'm also thankful, Lord, for the, your faithfulness to our church. As we head to our annual meeting this week, Lord, we're thankful for the ways in which you have guided us through this cultural storm of 2020. Lord, it is a joy to be on mission with you as our guide who is present with us, who has authority over all things. Lord, I commit this church again to our journey with you. Lord of the wind and the rain and the waves, you have the power to say, stop it, be still. Know, recognize that I'm God. Lord, I stand before you with these brothers and sisters and say I recognize you as the Lord over all things. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.